What an awesome passage. Good morning, church. I want to welcome everybody who's joining us online, everybody who's here in Mount Pleasant, our brothers and sisters joining us in Elma, and I also want to welcome my favorite camp, I can't say it, can I? I'm sorry. No, I'm kidding. I love all of you. Uh, it, is, it is tough for me because I love being here. I love getting the chance to share what God's put on my heart from his word, but I also miss being with my St. John's family too. So I do love all of you. And if you bear with me, I'm just going to take a very brief moment of personal privilege here this morning and just share something with you because I realized that... Uh, We've been, my wife and I have been in this church for about 14 years, but when we transitioned to Elma in preparation for the St. John's launch, and then after the St. John's launch, God has grown this church, and there's many people that may not know who I am. So if I haven't met you, it's very nice to meet you. My name is Josh. I'm blessed to be the campus pastor at the St. John's campus, loving on that group and loving on you. And just a little bit about my wife and I, about 14 years ago, we had three kids and we were looking for a church. And we said, what do we want in a church? We want biblical teaching. We want a place where there's community and you're brought into community and you're encouraged to be in community groups, small groups with people. But as a whole community, the church is living Christ out in the greater community in that area. We want a church where people are gonna come alongside our little kids when they're in elementary school and middle school and high school and college and beyond and partner with us and not do the job of parenting for us, but say we're with you and we wanna help you lead your young kids into a focused life with Jesus Christ. And as we visited and as we fell in love with Community Church, that's how we came to be here. So for almost 14 years, my wife and I have been coming here. We've loved being plugged in. It's been a joy to be part of ministries and partner with you in that. And we've seen our kids grow in this church. So our son, who was young when we got here, is now married an amazing young woman. And they actually have a little boy who's eight months old. He just came with her to VBS for the first time last week, got his little t-shirt. So best promotion I ever got was from dad to papa. I highly recommend it. It's awesome. Our middle daughter, Sarah, she's actually graduated from college and she works as a, an assistant manager at a local coffee shop, and she's also the children's ministry coordinator at the St. John's campus, so she's plugged in. And our youngest daughter, Anna, she's gonna be a, a Chippewa starting this fall, and she actually is also a barista, so fire up chips, and another daughter who can make good coffee, and I love coffee. So that's all good, but just a little bit extra, my mom and dad attend this church, and my other mom and dad, Liz's parents, also attend this church. So just so you know, I don't just show up and say, hey, I love community church. I am seeing what God is doing through community church from my grandson, who's eight months old, through four generations, even to his great-grandparents as they actually serve alongside you and grow alongside you. So you heard Wally say probably a couple weeks ago in a sermon, unless you say yes to God, you'll never know what you would have missed. And I will tell you, I thank God for giving me the opportunity to answer the call to serve as the campus pastor because I would not have wanted to miss on all the stuff God's doing and miss out on the family that I have in St. John's. So if we hadn't met before, that's just a little bit about who I am. I'd love to meet you if we get the chance. So that being said, I'd like to tell you a story. And this story is about the wife that I mentioned, Elizabeth. She's an amazing woman. We started dating when I was 16. She was 17, never broke up. We just celebrated 31 years of dating last week and 25 years of marriage. She's a very patient person. So I learned a lot about that woman one day. Michael was only a couple of weeks old and we were visiting friends. And after a great visit at their home, it was time to leave. It's winter time and Liz got bundled up. She had her coat on. She had Michael bundled up in his little outfit. She had him in her hands and we were walking out the back door of the house. Now to set the stage a little bit, their back door had a little landing that was maybe three foot wide and three foot across. 
I don't have to tell you that that's not a lot of room for my wife and I to both occupy the same space. The interesting thing is on one side of that landing was a door going outside. On the other side of a landing was an open doorway with no door and it led down a flight of wood stairs with no carpet or padding, no wall on either side and it was a cement floor at the bottom. This is where I found myself as I reached for the door to open the door for my wife. You'll remember we'd never been there before. She had no idea and at no fault of her own as I opened the door and she stepped back a little bit holding our newborn baby, she actually fell off the second step on that landing that neither of us knew existed. So my wife and my new baby are falling down a flight of stairs. She's going backwards head first down wood stairs. And as she fell, I jumped over and I tried to grab her and I end up on my back on the stairs with my feet pressed in the door holding onto my wife and she's holding onto our baby and I hear her start crying. And I thought, oh no, she's hurt. But I learned that my wife is an amazing woman that day. I already knew that. But you know, she wasn't crying for herself. She started saying over and over again, is he okay, is he okay, is he okay? She wasn't asking about me, if you're curious. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. She was asking about our son. In that moment, I realized how tough that woman was and I realized how much she loved our son. Not that there was any doubt, but in falling backwards down a flight of stairs, she didn't try to grab a rail. She didn't put her hands out behind her. She didn't let go of him and try to grab onto somebody else that was standing there. She wrapped him up and curled up. And in that moment, without saying a word, what she screamed with her actions was, I will take the hit. I will take the pain. Whatever I have to do to make sure you're safe, you will be fine. And as my buddy Dave grabbed Michael and handed him off to Tracy and then helped Liz up and then helped me up, she continued to ask, is he okay? See, today, church, we're going to talk about the second chapter of Ephesians, and we're going to talk about the grace that's been poured out. But before we can understand the loving God that gives us grace, we have to understand how loving he is. I can't fathom how loving our God is. The more I learn about his love, the more I realize I'm just scratching the surface. But when I look at my wife wrapping around a newborn baby saying, I will take the hit, I will fall down these stairs as long as you're okay, it's the closest earthly thing I can think of. And if you multiply that infinitely, we've just started to see how much Christ loved you when he was at the cross that day. So let's start with that as a baseline. That's a baseline of understanding Christ's love for us. That unearned, limitless, selfless, deep, unrestricted love is what we're talking about today. Now imagine that love multiplied times a million, and we're starting there with God. In recent weeks, unfortunately, I've had the opportunity to talk to people who have lost family friends. And they say things like, positive things like, you know what, I knew she was walking with the Lord, I know she's okay. Or I know he loved God and now he's with God. And we might kind of run those as, as like just a cliche, make yourself feel better kind of comment, but it's not. There's a deep power in that moment of loss to be able to say, I understand what life truly is. And even in the emotional pain of death, I can have hope. And I've experienced that with multiple people. You know, you can look to your right and left right now, and you can see people who are alive and living next to you. You can feel yourself, you can check your own heartbeat, you know you're breathing, that's life. You may see a pregnant mom who's expecting walking the halls of the church today, and you'll look and you'll think, that little baby that's moving inside of her, that's life. All of those things are life as we're used to it, but there's also something on the grander scale that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the large scope of eternal life that we're called to when we talk about a life with Christ. The kind of life that people like us that are in God's family, 
can celebrate even in the face of turmoil and trauma and death and loss. To understand what it is to truly have that kind of life in Christ, we also have to look at where we all started. Where we all start as humans in this fallen world. Before we talk about life, we have to say, you know what, let's look at Paul and what he said to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter two that we're walking through with Paul and let's see what he says about where we start out. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's where we start. Every single one of us, church, we start separated from God by sin. Separated from God and following the ways of this world, deserving punishment. But there's more to the story. A few weeks ago, if you were here, if you saw online, Pastor Aaron talked about discipleship and spiritual growth. And the good thing is, when he talked about how we all start spiritually dead and separated from God, through discipleship and growth and accepting Christ as our Savior, we can move into being a spiritual infant and start down a trail of growth in our lives. Here at Community Church, our goal is to lead people to a focused life with Jesus Christ, to disciple people and see them grow. Sometimes I hear people say, though, I don't know that I need that because I'm a good person. Do you see my life? I'm nice to people. I'm a good person. I'm patient with people. We can't fall into that. Because regardless of how many nice things we've done, what Paul says is true. God's word tells us in another place in the New Testament, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, the truth is, church, the day Adam and Eve sinned, since then, every single one of us was born separated from God. Another truth that we hear in that passage we read is that Satan is actually at work. He's not passive. It's not enough that we're separated from God from the time we're born, but it says that Satan is actively trying to keep people from the truth. In God's word, Peter actually says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. So it's not just that we're separated from God, we also have Satan who is working actively to try to keep people away from the truth. This is what Paul was warning the church at Ephesus about when he talked to them. One, understand you're separated, and two, be careful because there's someone out there actively trying to keep you from the truth. And then when he talks about following our desires and thoughts, we can see that reflected by James as well because he also says, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So we're seeing here where we come from. It's a sobering reality that Paul gives us. Now you might say, hold on, Pastor Josh. If I take a person who's on death row, they're a convicted person on death row and they've done horrible, awful things in the world, and then I compare them to a person who's maybe a good community leader who just doesn't know Christ, this person obviously has more social decay and, and bad stuff on them. From the outward look and a worldly view, you might say, yeah, there's a little bit of a difference. But all have sinned. Let me ask you this. If the person convicted on death row is separated from God and they're spiritually dead, and this person who's a great community leader but they don't know Christ is separated from God and spiritually dead, I have an odd question for you this morning. 
can one dead person be more dead than another dead person? You kind of chuckle or you laugh when you think about it, but that's actually what we're saying. We have to be careful because we can't say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. We're all separated. The simple and somber truth is that we all start in the same place, all of us. And it leads us to the first truth that Paul has given us today. And that is the simple fact that we all need Jesus. It's a non-negotiable. So today we start from there. We all need Jesus. So at this point, I know what you're thinking. Wow, thank you. What an uplifting, great service. I'm glad I came to hear you tell me this wonderful news. Nothing positive so far. But just like the best TV commercials we all chuckle at, I can say, but wait, there's more. It doesn't stop there. I will admit, it would be a morbid, sad state of affairs if the story stopped here. And if all the facts pointed towards a spiritual dead end, that would be a horrible lesson and it would be a horrible message. But it doesn't stop there and they don't point towards a dead end. Let's go back to our section in Ephesians and look at verse four and five and see what it says. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. What an amazing 180. This is God's plot shift in the story of mankind. It is a complete reversal. It's amazing. And I love the King James version of this verse because it doesn't start with but because. It says but God. But God. Two of the most powerful words in the Bible. I would say that if you're gonna take two words in the Bible and carry them on your heart every day, two words of the Bible and tattoo them on your brain so no matter what you face in life, you remember them and you bring them to thought, it would be but God. Think about it. What have we talked about so far this morning? We're separated from God, we're born in sin, we can't reach the creator, we deserve wrath and punishment. Then along comes this booming statement that echoes before and after and throughout time, but God. Something changed. Last week, if you heard the message, you heard Pastor Wally talk about the power of just one word from our God. We're talking about that same God with all the authority of creation and all authority and all the power in the entire universe that we know and we don't know belongs to God. And he changed the trajectory of mankind at the point of, but God. I don't know if you ever thought about it. Just this morning I heard one of my brothers talking about a phrase he loves in scripture and he, he sees it over and over again. I love but God. 45 times in God's word, it says, but God. And it's always when something massive changes and God steps in. Let's look at just a couple of them. First Corinthians, it's talking about temptation, but God is faithful. First Corinthians, Apollo watered, but God gave the increase. Acts, they laid him in a tomb. Guys, that's, that's final, that's death. But God raised him from the dead. Psalm 73, my heart may fail, but God is my strength and portion forever. Genesis, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Acts, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Acts again, they sold him as a slave in Egypt, but God was with him. First Samuel, Saul searched for him, but God did not let David into his hands. Time and time again, church, 45 times we see but God. Overwhelming odds are turned when God shows up, and that's not different for you. 
When God comes into your life, that but God moment, when he steps in and says, you may look at things this way, see it this way, everything may look dark, but God, I'm here and I am the one person who can change things. So let me speak to you personally, whoever you are as a man or woman, online or here or at another campus. When Satan whispers in your ear and he says, you're not good enough, you say, but God says I am. When Satan says, remember what you used to be, you say, but God says I'm not anymore. Go through every day with that ammo and every time Satan comes against you, every time you're faced with trials and stress and you just wanna go, this is too much for me, with full faith believing in the power of God, say, but God is here and he is showing up and he will turn the tides. That's actually what's happening in Ephesians when Paul says this. When he tells us that Christ came even when we were in our sin and transgressions and gave his life for us. How? And why? It seems impossible. We've already said this morning that we deserve God's wrath. But God says, I'm going to pour out grace on you even though you don't deserve it. So now we say, what is grace? How do you define grace? A lot of people define grace by saying, well, you know what? It's undeserved favor. That makes sense. That's a good definition. Some people go a next step and say it's undeserved favor towards someone who's unworthy. I would also say that's accurate. Grace is our loving, perfect creator God reaching out to us knowing that we're imperfect, knowing that we're blemished sinners and sending his son to die for us anyway. His sacrifice satisfied a sin debt that we could never repay. So let's look at that definition again. Was that grace undeserved? Absolutely. Did we get favor? An immeasurable amount. We were the recipients of that favor. Let me describe grace to you in another way. I know we've got some kids with us today, and a lot of kids in this room probably like Disney. So you will know who Cinderella is. And I don't know if you've been to Disney World, or if you've seen a postcard, or a picture, and a movie, or maybe you can just imagine right now what Cinderella's castle looks like. This is a true story. There was a group of people, they were in Cinderella's castle, and there was a sea of children, and they were waiting because Cinderella was going to be coming into the room. Boys and girls alike, the girls are all dressed like Cinderella. They want to see Cinderella. You can just feel the energy in the room, and they're spread across the room like this. And in one moment, a door opens, and in walks Cinderella. And it's good that it was a castle and not a ship, because it would have capsized. And all these kids go flooding towards this young lady who's playing the role of Cinderella. And it's interesting because Cinderella walks in and she's poised, her skin's perfect, her hair's perfect, beaming smile. She's obviously the perfect person to be Cinderella. Amazing, extravagant costume on. And she walks in and every one of those kids just wants to meet Cinderella and be met by Cinderella. And one at a time, she acknowledges them, signs this, that, touches them. But church, on the other side of the room, there's a little boy. And he's standing there and he's holding the hand of his older brother. And it's very difficult to tell how old he is because his face is deformed and he's dwarfed and he has some physical limitations that he has no control over. And he's standing on the other side of the room and he didn't even move towards Cinderella. And you can feel it. It's palpable in the air. He wants to go see Cinderella. He wants Cinderella to come see him. But you can tell he's sitting there thinking, is this going to be one more time I get rejected? Am I gonna be pushed out of that crowd? Is this gonna be one more time where I see something I really want and I'm pushed away just because of how I look and, and what my outward appearance is? There's a part inside of you hearing this story, you just wanna go, Cinderella, go to that kid. She did. 
As patiently as she could, she worked her way through that sea of kids and she broke free from the group and she walked over to where that little boy was. And not only did she walk over to that little boy, but when she got there, she bent down on her knee and she took his face in her hands and she kissed him on the cheek. That's a feel-good story. It's grace and love despite what somebody looks like. We feel warm and fuzzy right now. A couple people are doing this. You might got something in your eye. But here's the thing. As beautiful as that story is, when Max Lucado shared that in one of his books, when you read it, you will realize there's also another side of that story when we talk about grace. Was grace given by that young lady playing Cinderella? Absolutely. Was that a loving gesture? Absolutely. But here's the truth, church. When that Cinderella stood up, and walked away to go make her next appearance. She left a kiss, but when she walked away, her beauty went with her. He was still in the exact same state that he had been in when she walked in the room. You see, when Jesus Christ gives you grace, when Jesus Christ meets you with that gift of salvation, he doesn't walk up and kiss you and go, there, there. What he does is he walks up and he says, you need me and I love you and I will take that, that just shame or whatever you hold, that ugliness, I will take it on myself and I won't walk away. I will leave you clean and pure and refreshed and whole because you have a new identity with me. We're not talking about a little boy in a fake castle. We are talking about your real relationship with Jesus Christ who loves you and makes a change at that but God moment. This leads us to our second truth. The second truth as we talk about grace is this. We are saved only by God's grace. By nothing else, only by God's grace. How many people in here have ever seen somebody's status change on social media? Maybe Facebook or something else, they've seen a status change. Quite a few, right? It's amazing how much weight we put in that. It amazes me as I watch, and and I watch different people, and you look, and they went on one coffee date, 20 minutes at Big B, and all of a sudden, click, 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 in relationship with. It's amazing. That status change is a big deal for people, and we watch that, and it says so much about somebody, what they say their status is. I've heard people talk about salvation that way. You know, I was walking through life, I was separated from God, I was dead in sin, I deserved separation and hell, I repented, I believed, I prayed, and, and then I got on Facebook and status changed in relationship with Jesus. Good to go. It sounds foolish, but that's how some people look at it. The interesting thing is, when you accept Christ's gift of salvation through grace, it is not a status change. You are not buying fire insurance. You're not checking a box. It is a complete change in identity. It's not a change in mindset or a simple change in how you see things. Let's go back to our scripture in Ephesians 2 and look at verses 6 and 7. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in this kindness through Jesus Christ. Paul's reminding us that our acceptance of salvation through grace is way more than a change in status. Our very identity forever in Christ has changed. We're all seated here on earth right now. But when you give your life to Christ and accept him as your savior, you are given a different position and a different identity in the kingdom of God. We have a position with him, eternity position with him, to sit and to praise him. And what are we praising him for? because the amazing, loving, gracious God he is. The grace he gives us allows us to be in a position to worship him for the rest of eternity because of the praise he gave us. 
we start out separated and dead and lost. And then we become the sons and the daughters of a living God. That's incredible. As I was praying through this sermon, I was reminded of a story of Lazarus. And bear with me, there is a connection. For whatever reason in my mind, the story of Lazarus jumped out as a great example of us being called from death to life and then having a relationship continue. If you open your Bible later today or this week and you open to John chapter 11, you will read the story of a man named Lazarus. And he was a friend of Jesus. And Jesus got word that he was sick and he was declining and it was expected that he would die. And Lazarus' friends wanted Jesus to hurry. Get over here. You need to stop this from happening. And when Jesus arrived in that town, Lazarus had died and he had been laid to rest. He was buried. He was in a tomb and there was actually a rock over the entrance of that tomb. And people said, if only you had been here sooner, you could have kept this from happening. And Christ did a miracle that day. Christ called to Lazarus, called him out of that tomb, called him out of the stench of death and of a sealed tomb and called him out to life. That's a pretty incredible story, isn't it? The interesting thing is if you turn to the very next chapter, John chapter 12, we start reading about Jesus reclining at a table, having a meal. A woman comes and she actually pours expensive perfume on his feet. And that's a great story too. But in the first two verses, we miss something amazing. Where is Jesus in chapter 12? He's back in Lazarus' hometown. And who is reclining at the table with him having a meal? Lazarus. I look at my life and I think, I love that this is an example of what Christ has done for me. It's what Christ does for everybody who accepts that free gift of salvation. Lazarus was dead and Christ didn't just go, yep, you're dead, now you're alive and move on. He called him from the stench of death, the permanency of death, and said, I'm calling you from death to life and then I'm continuing in relationship with you and not only that, you have a seat at the table where I dine. What a beautiful illustration of where we are with God. When you accept his gift of salvation, we are literally granted a seat at his table for eternity to be with him. I don't know about you, but, but that stirs in me. That encourages me. This confirms our third truth today, that child of God is not just a status, but it's our identity. When you say, I'm a Christian, that's not just a status. You can actually say, I am forgiven, and through grace, God has granted me an identity change, and I am a different person. I am actually his child, and have granted, been granted a seat next to him. So we all need Jesus. We've said that. We've said that we're only saved by grace, and child of God is not a status, but our identity. So I guess you can pat yourself on the back. Good job. You showed up. You read your Bible. You're a good person. We understand this now. We're good people, we treat people well, we have a good reputation, and when we walk around, even when we're at work, maybe we carry our Bibles. Nicely done, we're all set. No, not at all. Not for a moment can we slip into thinking that any of this was done on our own ability. Nothing we do, no works can get us to where grace got us. The Christian walk does not start with what you do, but it starts with what he did. Church, if you don't remember anything else today, please hear me when I say that again. Listen to this truth. It's the core of who we are. The Christian walk does not start with what you do, but with what he has done. I think that's why Paul included verse 8 and 9, because he didn't want us to miss that point. If you look at verse 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. 
A lot of no's and no one's in there. Paul's crystal clear. There is nothing we have done or can do to earn our salvation. Grace is the only means we can get to God. A lot of people say, but my parents were in the church and then I was born in the church and then I grew up in the church and I've done a lot of nice things. I've gone on trips, I've donated. I'm just a really good person, ask anybody. All of those are great things, but in the truth of the word of God, let's look at two facts. Number one, let's look at the debt that's actually owed. And number two, let's look at a timeline associated with that. The debt of sin that's owned by every, owed by every man and woman that walked the face of this earth is a debt that can only be covered by the sacrifice and the blood of a perfect person. And there was only ever one person that walked this earth and didn't sin, and that was Jesus Christ. So that negates my ability to be able to pay the debt because I'm not perfect. I didn't walk a sinless life. I couldn't pay the debt if I wanted to because I just can't do it. I'm not that person. Secondly, we look at the timeline involved, and when you look at the timeline involved, when Jesus Christ, after living a sinless life, voluntarily went to that cross and died and suffered for you, when he satisfied and paid your sin debt, and then when he said, I'm extending you this gift of salvation through grace, and at that moment when the veil of the temple was shredded from the top to the bottom and split, showing that there was now a way to God, you and I weren't even born. So not only are we not capable of paying the sin debt that was owed, we weren't even around. We didn't exist yet to even try to make it happen when Christ took care of it. It's past tense. It's been done. He paid the debt forever. It can be tempting to think that, that we've earned our way, and I was trying to think of a way to, to explain what it looks like when we kind of go, hey, God, look what I did. I got here. I earned this. When my wife and I got married, we actually, uh, we enjoyed friendship with a family that's still amazingly dear friends, and Liz was the nanny for their six children. So we decided, hey, we're newlyweds, we have a ton of energy, absolutely zero knowledge in parenting, let's take four kids under 11 and let's take them camping. It was a great idea for like 15 minutes, maybe 16. It was a good memory. So we take these four kids and where do we go? Sleeping Bear Dunes. If you've never been there, a beautiful part of God's creation. You go up to Sleeping Bear Dunes and you can actually park at a parking lot. There's a beautiful dune, there's a lake, but if you walk across the series of dunes, you can walk right to Lake Michigan. Great idea, right? We've got four little kids. Let's go for a hike, three and a half miles round trip over sand dunes. Sand dunes are tough and a challenging hike for adult legs with adult strength. They're even more challenging for little people legs with little people strength. So I started that walk and we started up the sand dune and I had a little girl's hand in one hand, a little boy's hand in the other and I'm walking up the sand dunes and guess what happened before I got to the top? You know what happened. I had a little boy sitting on my shoulders and a little girl in my hands and we walked three and a half miles to the shore and back and had a great day. But here's what got me. We returned home and the kids were telling their mom about this camping trip we'd had and the little boy that rode on my shoulders the entire walk said, Mom, we got out at the car and we hiked all the way to Lake Michigan and back. And I'm thinking, you little turkey, you rode. But the truth is, it's funny when a little boy does it, but it's not funny when the God who called us from death to life carried us from where we could not leave to where we could not get without him. And we have the audacity to say, look where I walked. We can't do that. We're tempted, but we can't. One of my heroes in the faith, an amazing pastor who was held prisoner by the Nazis, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, an amazing man talked about this grace that God gave us. 
It's not a cheap grace. It's not a cheap grace that you just go, yep, I'll take it. It's a grace that costs something. It's not just a status change, but the rich, costly grace that changes our identity. He summed it up in these words. Listen to Dietrich Bonhoeffer as he says this. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man's life, and it's grace because it gives man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were born with a price. And what costs God so much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. This is our fourth and final truth from Paul today, church. It is all about Christ and not about me. So now Paul confirmed clearly all these things we've talked about, and verse one through nine are pretty clear, and we just talked through all of verse one through nine. But then you kind of go, where do we go from here? And I think Paul knew we were gonna ask that question and he said, here's verse 10 to wrap it up for you. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. That verse starts with the word for. Tiny little word, massive power. What does for mean? He's saying knowing all of this, hearing all of this, now that we know verse one through nine, here's what happens. You are God's handiwork. Somewhere online or in St. John's or in Elma or right here, there's a man or woman that needs to hear this today. When God says you are his handiwork, that means you are not a mistake. You are not an accident. You are not a question mark that just exists for an unknown reason in this universe. You have a purpose. And in the original text, when it says handiwork, it means poem or masterpiece. You are not just some person, some functioning collection of organs. You are the masterpiece of God. You need to know that today. You were designed and created by God. You were designed and created and you were designed with a purpose and God's word says that you weren't hidden from him even when you were woven together in the secret place of your mother's womb. The Bible says that God has a plan for you to prosper you and not harm you, to give you a hope and a future. The loving God who created you has a plan for you and it existed before you were born. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are given a true new life in and with Christ. He has changed your eternal identity and with that identity change comes the identification of the plan he has for you. Church, you can't do anything to earn God's grace, but once you receive it, you will see that there's something that he has called you to do. When you accept Christ and you accept this free gift of grace, his spirit will stir in you, I have a job and a task for you, and it will fit your spiritual gifts and your talents and your passions, and it will be something exciting you can do, but God has that only for you. When you come to him realizing that all you have is from him, when you allow him to break new ground in your life, you will see new fruit pour from your life and your walk with him. God did not simply allow you to exist for this finite lifetime on earth. He masterfully created you for eternity and he is calling you to be part of that. 
not a mundane life, not a life with a status change, but a full, exciting, eternal life where on this earth you are to reflect his glory and praise him. And after this life, when you're in heaven seated at the table, you will worship him for the amazing grace he poured out that you and I did not deserve. Remember the story I opened with, church? Remember Liz clutching Michael, willing to take the hit, willing to take the pain so he could survive and live? That same unconditional, parental, selfless love multiplied immeasurably is the level of love Christ had for you at the cross, and he still has it for you today. So if you are hearing me today, and you've never heard this before, and you say, I had no idea that there was a free gift of salvation through grace that was offered to me, and God's stirring in your heart to accept that gift, please, wherever you're at, talk to your host online, reach out to your campus pastor, go to the Connect team, talk to whoever brought you, and we would love to walk with you into that focused life with Jesus Christ. Your identity will change. And if you say, I'm a Christian, I've been walking with Christ for a long time and you're here today, I would challenge you with this. Go to God this week and say, what work is it that you've given me to do? But be careful. Do not say, God, what is your will for my life? That's assuming that your life is your life and you have it planned out and you're gonna fit him in as an add-on. Ask God, what is your will and how do I need to adjust my life to fit that? I want you to experience the fullness of life that God has designed for you, the life you can have in and with Christ. I love you, church. I really do. You are God's masterpiece. Go live.